cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a cold of silence and it can't go on. writings of people like Maurice Strong, 
and these guys from way way back you see how Maurice Strong was picked up in fact by Rockefeller when he was a youngster and groomed for his position and really became a technocrat and that's what Carroll quickly called these people like the Brzezinski's and the Kissinger's and the Maurice Strong's they're technocrats they work behind the scenes quickly said they have more power than any politician prime minister or president they know it uh, they don't get the public applause but they do the real work what they do is go around talking at world meetings organizations are started all over the world and they become the prime speakers to promote causes back with more after this break Way. Well, of course, the other way 
was already tabled on the books a long time ago, and out it will come after getting dusted off, and they'll give us this new this new combination of uh, socialism and capitalism, where massive bureaucracies and uh, government departments will run every facet of the individuals' lives. Plus, and I'm kidding you not, one of their main goals is to bring down drastically the amounts of human beings on the planet, especially the types that they think are now obsolete, which is anything beneath themselves at the top. The useless eaters, as Lord Bertrand Russell called them, because they knew that in a post-industrial society where China was planned to be set up as a manufacturer for the planet, they'd have all these people still consuming and eating and all the rest of it, uh, taking away the resources of what should rightfully be the elites, the ones who are more evolved than all the rest, so that they and their children can go off into some brave new world scenario or off into the stars and all this kind of stuff. So we've got to be careful when uh, we see the big fights going on. It's excellent that so much stuff has been exposed, but don't hold your breath because uh, these guys are not going to stop now and say, yeah, we did it, we conned you all, Uh, please forgive us. That's not going to happen. The agenda's too big. So many of it uh, is already implemented through governmental bills and laws and regulations. They have uh, climate councillors on pretty well every government department now just appointed there as advisors so they're not going to just give up an old old plan because a few of their their people were caught scamming and fudging all the figures it's it's too important for that and so much money is involved and plus they've got a whole new system of taxes and a whole new stock market on carbon uh, trading to benefit from too they're not going to just let this pass away so don't believe uh, that suddenly you're going to get them coming on, onto their knees and admitting that we're wrong and asking for forgiveness that will not happen will not happen and what might do this Copenhagen meeting is exactly like the, the conflict with the gasoline charges uh, they'll say well we're going to do this and, and tax you 40% on everything you purchase but we decided actually to do it as starting off at 5 or 10% on every item. It'll be something like that they'll come out with. And we'll all say, oh, thank God. And uh, then they can go on and up, up it the next time they meet with amendments. That's how it works in the real world. As I say, even before the Club of Rome came up with the idea, when they were given the job of finding a way to unite the whole planet under a threat, scenario, like a war-type scenario with a common enemy. Even before that, going back into the late 1800s, they were talking about catastrophes, man-made catastrophes, and what happens if the, the ordinary folk breed out of hand, as they said. We find uh, people who are propagandists for the big institutes, the royal institutes, uh, in World War I, at the end of World War I, saying, well, we haven't killed enough off meaning all the millions who got killed off in World War I, slaughtering each other. Uh, they said not enough have died, and the folk haven't given up their sovereignty. Uh, so we've got to have another war. So they did have another war. And at the end of that, he said, we'll need another one, he said. Folks still weren't giving up their sovereignty. This is an agenda, an old agenda. And how would you get folk to stop breeding? And how would you get volunteers coming forward to be sterilized? 
Well, you, you can do it starting off with uh, mainly industrialized nations or say deindustrialized but first world nations as like to call us now by teaching a religion in school and, and having youngsters offer themselves to be sterilized to save the planet. And we've already read articles on this show where youngsters have actually come forward and said just that. Because they've been teaching this religion, and it's a religion that they had to create. That's what Gorbachev said, because must tie it in with a religion based on a form of earth worship. But of course, the, the scientists are the new priests that come out and try to convince us of its factuality as well. So, that's what they've been doing, basically. They've, they've already started long years ago brainwashing the children. The money sector is already highly involved, have been for years. I noticed the Department of Energy for Britain, or the UK, is now called the Department of Energy and Climate Change. So that tells you it's a rather permanent thing. And I think most other countries are pretty well the same. All this was done covertly, quietly, when we were distracted with other crises that they gave us to look at. And that's how, again, they, get, they come forward. They always create so many crises and distract us into other things. Well, they really move ahead, ahead behind the scenes, uh, sometimes openly, but never mentioned by the media. And the only reason the media is making a big deal out of it now is because it's good news, and they know themselves that the Copenhagen Treaty is pretty well signed, because they signed the precursors to the treaty already uh, six months ago. I read that, about that last night. So it's a done deal. This article here confirm some of the things I put out years ago on the first global revolution the book put out by the founders of the Club of Rome it was printed in 1991 but in the book they mentioned that in the early 70s I think 72 they came up with the idea because they were given the task to find a reason to unite the world they came up with with the, the need to find out a reason that the public would believe to come together and sacrifice themselves as in a time of war this is what they said. This is what they said here from the book. And this was in Time magazine, April 1977, the first global revolution. The need for enemies seems to be a common historical factor with governments. Some states have driven, uh, striven to overcome domestic failure and internal contradictions by blaming external enemies. The ploy of finding a scapegoat is as old as mankind itself. When things become too difficult at home, divert attention to adventure abroad. Bring the divided nation together to face an outside enemy, either a real one or else one invented for the purpose. That's page 71 of the first global revolution. One invented for the purpose. And then they go on, because remember their task was to find a way to unite humanity by looking at all these factors that brought humanity together, generally under warfare scenarios. And they said this, in searching for a common enemy against whom we can unite, we came up with the idea that pollution, we came up with the idea, I'll repeat that for the heart of thinking, that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine and the like, would fit the bill. This is their words on page 75 of their book. In their totality and their interactions, these phenomena do constitute a common threat which must be confronted by everyone together, because they already had this as an idea behind the scenes. But in designating these dangers as the enemy, we fall into the trap 
which we have already warned readers about, namely mistaking symptoms for causes. All these dangers are caused by human intervention in natural processes, and it's only through changed attitudes and behavior that they, they can be overcome. The real enemy, then, is humanity itself. That's on page 75 of the first global revolution. And that's only one part of one book, of one major think tank that works for the United Nations that has the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. But these are the guys who came up with the idea for them. I'll be back with more after these messages. Alone, and they won't bind together. 
the different things that make communities stick together, such as helping the elderly in their in their areas and feeding them too, uh, before the need or the created need for social services to take over that um, kept folk together. Everyone knew everyone else and helped each other out. I can remember in Britain too, uh, it was hard enough at one point many years ago to get even the rent money together. That was a common thing. They didn't have credit systems for people who didn't own any property. You couldn't get a bank loan. Everything you bought and young uh, my people bought was second hand and you paid that up on what they called tick. Tick was a uh, you paid so much per, per week by a guy who came to the door. But there was no credit cards. And often neighbors would help other neighbors. It was very, very common to pay the rent that week. That was, that was Britain before the credit cards were made uh, available to everybody. So they also looked after themselves. They didn't need all the governmental agencies to take care of their areas and their community. Everyone knew each other. It was a necessity. But the whole idea of attacking the culture meant that government agencies would come in and take over all those different functions that families and communities did for themselves. And then those services became authorities. And then the federal agency would back it up by laws on everyone, giving them ultimate authority, which takes all authority and right to do for yourself away from you and yours and your family and your neighborhood and all the rest of it. That's a cultural war. It's an attack on your culture. Well planned, written about again back in the early 1900s. And even uh, you find uh, Stalin talked about it before him, before him, Lenin as well. That's what they would do by the creation of services that would become authorities. The Washington Times Friday, December the 4th, says global warming theology, something I said a long time ago. It's amazing what comes out there eventually. Uh, when you think that everyone's ignoring what you're saying, they're not at all. They're, they're taking notes for the future. But it says here, belief in global warming has long had a tinge of theology about it, a form of cultism that adherents and defenders elevate to a holy crusade. Any who questioned the orthodoxy were branded as heretics, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. said that climate change skepticism is treason and exhorted that we need to start treating skeptics as traitors. That's a fact what he said. In 2007, the Weather Channel's Heidi Cullen said that meteorologists who were skeptical of man-made global warming should be decertified. See how tolerant these uh, people are, you know, these liberals? The emails from the University of East Anglia's Climate Research Unit reveal systemic or systematic attempts by high priests of this religion to silence scientists who disputed their rigged findings. The purveyors of global warming theology certainly benefited. They enjoyed, it, enjoyed professional success, received millions of dollars in grants, had influence in policy circles, were invited to international conferences, and found personal validation and fame. Never before had it been sexy to have climate scientists on your resume. And that's true. Who wanted to talk to a weather guy before? Back with more after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. 
because you can handle the truth. Cutting Through the Matrix, reading an article from Washington Times about global warming theology, but it says here that proper science unlocks secrets, it doesn't create them. The scientific method is a social enterprise and requires openness to function properly. Data must be freely available and methodologies subject to strict scrutiny in order to assess whether results can be verified, reproduced and subjected to reliability tests. There's no reason to trust any results based on hidden data and some very good reasons to distrust them. This is the gist of a prospective lawsuit against NASA. You think in NASA, see, all the biggies are involved in this, this big con. It says there's a lawsuit against NASA by Christopher C. Horner of the Competitive Enterprise Institute, which calls on the space agency to produce the climate data it has been keeping under wraps. These data are not classified information and should be part of the public record. NASA's stonewalling is suspicious and could augur that another scandal is brewing. Global warming was an academic Ponzi scheme. Its leading proponents were many Madoffs peddling a vision of global catastrophe to gullible activists, bureaucrats and policymakers. The vision was so vast, the fears inspired so pervasive that it seized popular imagination, aided by hucksters like former Vice President Al Gore and his science fiction feature film, An Inconvenient Truth. But like any Ponzi scheme, global warming only worked if everyone kept investing and no one looked at the books. Once the truth came out of manipulated findings, phony data, rigged peer viewer processes and intimidation of skeptics, the scheme began to collapse. Yet even as the edifice comes down, the adherents of the orthodoxy say that there is nothing to see. This is all a distraction from the business at hand and that there's still no time to lose. And it's true. It's true that even Al Gore today came out and says, oh, panic, 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 we've got to get this Copenhagen Treaty signed and all the rest of it. But if you, you think that NASA's not involved, there's far more on NASA out there too. Far more on NASA. Uh, NASA, for instance, has uh, the guy James Hansen at the top of it. Uh, it says here, NASA's James Hansen and 28 activists arrested protesting mountaintop mining. You think he's just an uh, a sort of innocent bystander who's just doing his job for NASA? No, this guy is a true believer in all this stuff, and his job is to help promote the cause, the belief system. And um, I'll put these links, remember, up in my website at the end of the, the show but um, it says here it's by Stacey Morford 23rd of June 2009 this was NASA's chief climate scientist James Hansen put it all on the line today to call attention to the devastation of mountaintop mining getting arrested along with actress Daryl Hannah Rainforest Action Network director Mike Brun and 26 other activists in a protest at West Virginia's Coal River Valley the group had led a rally at the Marsh Fork Elementary School in the shadow of a coal silo, then marched 300 yards to a mountaintop mining site run by coal giant Massey Energy. I'm not a politician, he says. I'm a scientist and a citizen, Hansen said from the rally. Politicians may have to advocate for halfway measures if they choose, 
but it's our responsibility to make sure our representatives feel the full force of citizens who speak for what is right, not what is politically expedient. Mountaintop removal, providing only a small fraction of our energy, should be abolished, he says. Then he goes on and on and on. So, yeah, no wonder they're fudging stuff and hiding stuff at NASA, too, you see. Uh, they're all in it, the big boys at the top. Be surprised. And it's not just about saving energy and, and saving the forest and saving... These guys want most of us off of the face of the planet. They come out with data and figures of how much they want the world to be reduced by. Of course, they themselves won't be reduced because they're the elite. They're, the scientific, they're better than you. They're, they've got better breeding better genes, and the proof is in their academic qualifications, you see? But you should all go at the bottom. All you guys, you poor saps out there that fund all this through your taxes, you're the ones that should go. Quite something, quite something. But here's another um, article here, also from the Washington Times, it says, uh, the, December the 3rd, the fight over global warming science is about to cross the Atlantic with a U.S. researcher poised to sue NASA. It's a bit the same one I read before, demanding the release of the same kind of climate data that has landed a leading British center in hot water over charges that skewed its data. And it goes on to Chris Horner, a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, said NASA has refused for two years to provide information under the Freedom of Information Act that would show how the agency has shaped its climate data and would explain why the agency has repeatedly had to correct its data going as far back as the 1930s. I assume that there is highly damaged, this is highly damaging, Mr. Horner said, these guys are quite clearly bound and determined not to reveal their internal discussions about this. See, all the data has been fudged. Because they had to uh, change all facts to fit the theory and really to fit the belief system, because there's much more riding on it, as I've just said before, than uh, saving energy and sustainability. It's about getting rid of people eventually down the line through more and more and more laws. And that will also supposedly come out of the Copenhagen Treaty in one form or another. Remember that all the big boys, all the big boys that, that now own the entire world's food supply are in on, on all this kind of stuff. They're all in on it together. So you better think about that. When five giant international corporations pretty well own the entire world's food supply, and they've said over and over at the United Nations that food has always been used as a weapon in the past, and they could use it again. We saw them using food as a weapon on Iraq. They call it embargoes. They don't like calling it starving people to death. They call it embargoes. They're doing the same thing with Iran now. You think they won't do it on you to get their way? To teach you the big lesson? Boy, those who don't know or read their history tend to repeat it. Ain't that for sure. Now, Let's not forget that another part of this whole big puzzle, and that's the war on terror. I call it the war of terror. Our life has been changed completely since 2001. And one of the big boys said that when it happened, right after it happened and the towers were hit, 
and said, life is never going to be the same again. What did he know that we didn't know? Because for all the, the, the incredible bills and laws that were passed across the planet at the same time with the anti-terrorism bills and so on, and the complete surveillance of everyone on the planet, this is much more than an overreaction. This never happened in Pearl Harbor. And supposedly it's, it's a small group of people hiding out in caves in Afghanistan. All this rubbish was trotted out to the general public because after all, it doesn't matter what you swallow at the time, it's as long as you allow them to get what they want to, to, to start rolling on the go. And that's what it was. It was bringing in a whole new world system for the century of change. We must never, ever forget that. A planned society. The global warming uh, is just a part of it to bring in the planned society. The war on terror is another one. Why did every media across the planet, television media, go to the man and the woman in the street immediately after the towers came down and said, would you give up all your freedoms for security? Every country went into the same act at the same time on their media. Why was that? That was to get it through our our heads. Uh, that something we'd never even thought of before. Most folk hadn't even thought about it. Why should you even think about that? Why would you give up all your, your freedoms for security when, you see, your freedoms are your security? It's your freedoms that protect you from your governments. And they've pretty well taken all our rights away from us. Everyone has been spied on. And they gave us a computer too long ago and Brzezinski said it before we were given the computer when he said a new form of um, communication will be shortly given to the general public to bring in, he says, a, a common culture across the world and also enable security data to be collected on everyone. That was in one of his books back in the 70s, early 70s. And what's happened since then? Here we are, all using the darn thing, and folk are putting everything up and sending emails about personal things to everyone else, and it's all been collected. And they, they know that now, and, and guess what? They don't care. This article is from, uh, is from uh, Wired.com. It says, Yahoo, Verizon, our spy capabilities would shock, confuse consumers. December the 1st, 2009. Want to know how much phone companies and internet service providers charge to funnel your private communications or records to U.S. law enforcement and spy agencies. This goes for, for every other country as well. And we were all told recently, too, that, oh, they're so reluctant to have to turn over um, all your data to the agencies when asked. Well, they never mentioned they were getting paid big bucks for it. But this article here talks about that. That's the question muckraker and Indiana University graduate student Christopher Sagoan asked all, he asked all agencies within the Department of Justice under a Freedom of Information Act request filed a few months ago. But before the agencies could provide the data, Verizon and Yahoo intervened and filed an objection on grounds that, among other things, they would be ridiculed and publicly shamed where their surveillance price sheets made public. Yahoo writes in its 12-page objection letter, and the link to that letter is actually here too. It's a PDF form. It says that if its pricing information were disclosed to Sagoan, he would use it to shame Yahoo and other companies 
and to shock their customers. Therefore, release of Yahoo's information is reasonably likely to lead to impairment of its reputation for protection of user privacy and security, which is a competitive disadvantage for technology companies, the company writes. Verizon took a different stance. It objected to the release. Another PDF here gives you Verizon's objection of its law enforcement legal compliance guide because it might confuse customers and lead them to think that records and surveillance capabilities available only to law enforcement would be available to them as well, resulting in a flood of customer calls to the company asking for trap and trace orders. Customers may see a listing of records, information, or assistance that is available only to law enforcement, Verizon writes in its letter, but call into Verizon and seek those same services. Such calls would stretch limited resources, especially those that are reserved only for law enforcement agencies. Other customers, upon seeing the types of surveillance law enforcement can do, might become unnecessarily afraid that their lines have been tapped, or call Verizon to ask if their lines are tapped, a question we cannot answer, meaning them, the callers. Verizon does disclose a little tidbit in its letter saying that the company receives tens of thousands of requests annually for customer records and information from law enforcement agencies, and they're getting paid for every darned one of them. Sogin filed his records request to discover how much law enforcement agencies and thus U.S. taxpayers are paying for spy documents and surveillance services with the aim of trying to deduce from this how often such requests are being made. Sacone explained in his theory on his blog, his blog is called Slight Paranoia, in the summer of 2009 I decided to try and follow the money trail in order to determine how often internet firms were disclosing their customers' private information to the government. I theorized that if I could obtain the price list of each ISP, detailing the price for each kind of service, and invoices paid by the various parts of the federal government, then I might be able to reverse engineer some approximate statistics. In order to obtain these documents, I filed Freedom of Information Act requests with every part of the Department of Justice that I could think of. The first DOJ agency to respond to his request was the U.S. Marshals Service, which indicated that it had, had price lists available for Cox Communications, Comcast, Yahoo, and Verizon. But because the company voluntarily provided the price list to the government, the FOIA allows the companies an opportunity to object to the disclosure of their data under various exemptions. Comcast and Cox were fine with the disclosure, Sokian reported. He found that Cox Communications charges $2,500 to fulfill a pen registered trap and trace order for 60 days and $2,000 for each additional 60-day interval. It charges $3,500 for the first 30 days of a wiretap. These are one wiretaps, right? And $2,500 for each additional 30 days. 30 days worth of a customer's call detail records costs $40. Comcast's pricing list, which was already leaked to the Internet in 2007, indicated that it charges at least $1,000 for the first month of a wiretap and $750 per month thereafter. But Verizon and Yahoo took offense at the request. Yahoo objected on grounds that its pricing constituted confidential commercial information and cited Exemption 4 of the Freedom of Information Act and the Trade Secrets Act. Exemption 4 of the FOIA refers to disclosure of commercial or financial information that could result in a competitive disadvantage to the company if it were publicly disclosed. 
So that's about using. Well, if, if our other companies know what we're charging, uh, well, it's a competitive disadvantage. This is the excuses are given rather than tell the public. Not only are they taking all your info and selling it to all these agencies, they're wiretapping you when required by these agencies as well and getting paid big bucks for doing so. This is the real world we live in, eh? This is the new freedom, the new freedom that Mr. Bush talked about. And no one asked him in the media, uh, please define new freedom, because he was giving you a legality. The new freedom, it was like the new deal. The new deal was a whole new way, apart away from the Constitution of the United States. It goes in every years and out the other, you know. This article here is from Los Angeles Times how things are racing ahead too and it's about microchip wristbands microchip wristband becomes a theme park essential under a technology section at Precision Dynamics what started out as a simple hospital ID product has become a high tech admission pass a cashless debit card a hotel hotel room key and a way to unite uh, lost children with parents 2nd of May by Hugo Martin in a nondescript manufacturing plant in a quiet San Fernando cul-de-sac, a khaki green machine the size of a buffet table that sucks in bright pink ribbon and spits out one of the hottest features in theme parks. Here, Precision Dynamic Core, a company that began making plastic hospital wristbands out of a Burbank garage more than 50 years ago, has become the nation's top producer of a new microchip-enhanced wristband for amusement parks, concerts, resorts and gyms. And I'll read where it goes on from there, because you know where it's going all, don't you, after this break. Through the Matrix. Reading an article about wireless wristbands and how they're getting used to all these amusement and theme parks. But uh, it says here the company leaders envision a future when they can expand the technology for use in border security and hospital identification, among other purposes. I should really add to this too that I read an article a while back there where they'd used one of these types of wristbands with microchip built in. Uh, on patients who had the flu shot about two years ago in one of the U.S. states. It was a trial to see how they would go in a pandemic scenario. But this could be used for anything, couldn't it? Anything. One day you'll have to have one of these chips either in you or on you before you can get into a grocery store. Alarms will go off and guards will come up and grab you. Oh, you haven't had all your shots, have you? And they'll lock you up. But... Yesterday, too, I mentioned about the smart meters. They're putting them in across Canada already. I got one put in a week or so ago. Uh, not by choice. They just come and do it. We have a lot of choices in democratic countries like Canada. But uh, this from the Mail Online to do with the smart meters in Britain. And they go further in telling you uh, what they're really for. I got the propaganda piece in Canada saying, well, we'll help you watch how much energy you're using. Here's the real reason here. Mail Online, 500 pounds it costs smart meter uh, for all which could let energy firms cap use in homes November the 30th 2009 
Smart meters for gas and electricity are set to be approved for installation across the country in a huge project that could cost homes and businesses more than £500 each. That would be on top of the £40,000 each family is to pay now for the bailing out the banks have just reported in the papers today. The meters are being presented as the key to doing away with estimated bills and encouraging families to cut down on their energy use by showing them how much they're using. The huge scheme is to be unveiled by Climate Change Secretary Ed Miliband. Climate Change Secretary, can you believe you've actually got a Climate Change Secretary? A belief system, you've got a priest on the government, eh? As part of a package of measures to cut the nation's carbon footprint, huh? ahead of the Climate Change Summit in Copenhagen. So don't bother waiting. However, the cost of the installation has been estimated by the government at £9 billion, while some analysts suggest the figure will be as high as £13.4 billion. Consumer groups fear that the major part of this bill will be passed on to householders and could add up to £515 per family over a 10-year period. Smart meters to be installed by 2020, that's how long it's going to take them over there, will allow power giants to read meters remotely most likely via link to the mobile phone network. What's well, two methods according to the pamphlet the left me? Uh, it says here, one's broadband across your electric wires and one's is FM. It will also allow companies to charge more during peak times. The meters could also be used in, to ration supplies across the network or cap electricity use in particular households to a certain threshold. They can turn you off. But what's going to come in is you're going to prepay according to uh, your means, as, as Lenin would say. Everyone gets uh, paid according to their means, meaning what level of society, how, how, how essential to society are you? That's really what it means. That's what the, that's what the means test means. <laughs> but uh, eventually, if you, you pay in advance, if you go over that, they'll simply cut you off remotely. And as people get poorer and poorer, you can use more and more electricity. At least you'll know how much you're using. That's awfully good, awful nice of them, isn't it? They've already put them across most of Canada, and so now they're doing it in Britain and elsewhere across the planet. From Hamish, myself, and to your Canada, it's good night to me, your God or your gods go with you.